Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAPS Middle East Books podcast. Uh, with us today is Jonathan Fulton. He's an assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi and the author of a new book, China's Relations with the Gulf Monarchies. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the book. Um, you know, why, what were you trying to accomplish uh, when you wrote it? And what do you think the major contributions of the book are going to be? Okay, well, what I was trying to accomplish, um, I, I live in Abu Dhabi, as you mentioned, and I saw um, before I started, this, this started as my dissertation topic, um, which I started working on in 2011. And when I was looking at the literature, the book-length lit literature, especially on China-Gulf relations, um, there hadn't been much that reflected the contemporary situation. There was a lot of really good work that was published um, during the Cold War that looked more broadly at, uh, at the Middle East in general. And uh, there had been a, a, another dissertation by a guy here in Abu Dhabi as well, or in Alain rather, uh, Mohammed bin Hawaiden, that looked at the Gulf and, uh, and uh, um, the China and the Gulf. But that was in 2003. And there really seemed to be a really big gap because things had changed, um, I felt significantly, and I really felt there needed to be something I looked at it. Um, it was interesting because a lot of the narrative about China-Gulf relations seemed to be um, stuck in this oil for trade narrative, that China is buying a lot of oil and selling a lot of stuff, and that's kind of the, the, the extent of the relationship. And from what I've seen here in Abu Dhabi, there was just so much more going on, and it really felt like, uh, like there had to be something that, that looked at it from an IR perspective and, and gave a, a fuller picture of the, of the relationships. One of the things which I really like about the book is that it gives what you're talking about, this uh, this really new way of thinking about the uh, contemporary situation, but it also goes back into history and kind of it tells the story in a way that I think brings a lot of these uh, a lot of these developments together, um, especially as China's uh, foreign policy more broadly has evolved along with the security needs and the economic interests of these states in the Gulf. Thanks. I mean, that was for me the really interesting thing because I came to this as a, as an East Asia guy. You know, before I'd come to Abu Dhabi, I'd been living in. I'd spent most of my twenties in Taiwan and Korea, and I moved here in two thousand and six. And when I when I started studying this this subject, it was you know a really big hole in my knowledge. I didn't really know much about what China had done here. So as I was doing the research, the the historical side of it, I thought was fascinating. Um, and from an IR perspective, I thought it was really interesting to chart how these relationships had changed over time, because again, a lot of the the the, the big landmark works had been published um, during the Cold War, and it kind of assumed that bipolarity was the driving um, feature. You know that China was responding to its relationship with the Soviets or or with the U.S. and the the Middle East was just kind of a um, a product of that. Uh, and the more I started reading it, the more I realized that there was, there was a lot of other features that were, that were driving change in the relations. And a lot of it was domestic issues within China or domestic issues within uh, the Gulf states and, and the perceptions of leaders in both sets of countries. So it was a really interesting historical uh, study. It took a lot of time. It was an incredible amount of reading, which I never thought I was getting myself into. And I probably would never recommend to any PhD student. But it was, uh, it was a really fun journey. Well, so when you look at the at the three countries, I mean, obviously there's some commonalities, right? China's place in the international system is changing, uh, and I think you, you do a really really nice job of showing how China's view of the relative threat posed by the Soviet Union and the United States changes. And so there's some there are things that are happening on the Chinese end, 
But you also look at these three countries, uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Oman, and you see some really interesting differences between how the, those relationships evolved. Why don't we talk about each of those in turn? Like, so start with Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, how does the Chinese-Saudi relationship change over time? Right. So for each case study, I, I kind of had to come up with a, a framework for looking at them. And there was a book that came out just before um, I started my dissertation by um, Christopher Davidson, uh, who I believe is still at Durham. And the book was looking at East Asia um, Gulf relations, and it had a really catchy title. He always has great titles. It was From Indifference to Interdependence. And that seemed to me, you know, an interesting starting point. You know, how is it that these countries that had really nothing in common or, or very few shared interests got to this level of interdependence? Um, so that's where I started. I looked at the, the founding of the PRC in 1949 um, and charted the relationship from, from there forward. So with the Saudis from um, from 49 until about 1965, and this was the same with, with each, um, I, th I found that Davidson's idea of, of indifference was pretty accurate. You know, there's a lot going on at the international level. They're, they're um, aligned um, oppositionally in this, this bipolar system that China's with the, the uh, Soviets, the Gulf states are with the West. Um, they're far away. They, they have very little to do with each other. China's in the process of state consolidation and, and getting over this brutal civil war. It's focusing on its borders. It, it Really, there's very little that the Middle East has to offer it. And Saudi is interesting because, again, it, it, it knows almost nothing about China. It's not really a very important country. Um, they, the, there's very little in the way of shared interests or threats. The one thing they do know about China is from these waves of Chinese um, immigrants, uh, Muslim officials or, or uh, military leaders who had been in the Kuomintang during the Civil War, saw the writing on the wall, knew the communists were about to win, and they got out because they thought being uh, Muslim in, in a communist China was going to be a, a pretty bad deal. So a lot of them resettled in, in uh, Kyle and somewhere in Jeddah. And the stories that they told their hosts about you know, how, how the Chinese government saw Islam were quite negative. So the Saudis were very happy to keep them at arm's length. They thought, you know, there's very little to do with these guys. The, the Chinese had this very strong ideological lens that they looked at them through. They thought these Gulf monarchies were kind of uh, colonial lackeys, I think, were the phrase they often used, um, you know, only exist at the, because of their British or American friends. And, and they really just had very little to do with each other. And this I can't, I can't imagine the Saudis were great fans of a, of a country that was supporting peasant rebellions and uh, communist revolution. Not so much, no. They, they, they kind of frowned on that. <laughs> so they were pretty happy to just keep each other at arm's length, and, and there was very little reason for, them, for that to change. You know, in the Bandung Conference in 55, China saw itself as a leader of the third world, and it, it started to reach out to the Middle East. But the Gulf didn't feature. I mean, they're they looking at Egypt, they're looking at Syria, they're looking at... Yemen a little bit, but, but again, when they looked at the Gulf, they saw kind of uh, nothing for them. And this just, changed. Just, just to jump over just for a moment, um, the, one of the things which is so interesting in the book is I hadn't quite realized the extent to which China was central in supporting the Dofar Rebellion in Oman around this time. Yeah, and that's what kind of triggered this next stage. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's, there was a Sino-Soviet split in the early 60s. And that led to this cultural revolution, which got China really fired up in this, this revolutionary foreign policy. And the problem is that they had no diplomatic representation in the Middle East at the time. So they have very little, you know, knowledge or intelligence about what was happening in the region. So when they looked at Oman and they saw this Dofari rebellion, 
they interpreted it as this anti-imperialist movement. They thought that, you know, this was a peasant uprising against an unpopular British-controlled monarchy. And, and um, they decided to support this. And this obviously would have pretty awful consequences for the, the state of the relationship. China became the only material provider, external material provider, um, for these Dafari rebels. And this was in the late 60s. They were providing weapons and, and training, and of course, lots of little red books and ideological training and stuff like this. Um, but they, they kind of jumped in. They were worried the Soviets might get in ahead of them. So they thought we should, we should get into Oman and, and become this kind of leader of this vanguard. And the, the aim, what, what initially was the Dafari Liberation um, Organization became the, I've got to see if I've got this right, the People's Front for the Liberation <laughs> of the Occupied Gulf. You know, rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Hmm. Um, and it was meant to start in Oman and, and overturn or, uh, 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 the uh, Sultan Said, Sultan Qaboos's father, over over uh, rule him, and then just go straight up to Kuwait and get rid of all the monarchies in the Gulf and replace it with these kind of peasant communist rebel groups. So that didn't sit too well with the Saudis, of course, or the Omanis, or or any of the Gulf Arabs. Um, and it really kind of it was a very short period that that kind of stopped in the early seventies, but it really led to a, a, especially with the Saudis a long period of, of distrust and anger and, and uh, just the sense that China's uh, underhanded, we can't trust them. So then what changed? How did, uh, how did China learn to uh, stop worrying and love Gulf stability? <laughs> That's the title of my next book, thank you. <laughs> um, I think what happened, well obviously in 1971, and this is kind of where the systemic pressures start to kick in, you know, the, the, the Saudi, sorry, the Sino-Soviet split, in the late 60s had gotten to a really dangerous point. You know, we've got these border incursions and the threat of war between the Soviets and the Chinese at the exact moment that America looked pretty weak, you know, because of Vietnam. And China's biggest threat suddenly wasn't the U.S., suddenly it was the Soviets. And they looked at the Gulf and they thought, you know, um, it's, it's not a, a theater of a, a core interest, but the Soviets have this influence with, uh, with Iraq. And, and if they start to spread their influence, the Brits had pulled out of the Gulf. And the U.S. wasn't able to fill that vacuum. And there was a sense in, in Beijing that maybe the Soviets were going to fill that hole in the Gulf. And they, they, they really wanted to keep the Soviets out. They realized that their support of the Dafari Rebellion was not gaining traction. They, I think they kind of realized that was a lost cause. And they came to kind of recalibrate and think, you know, our interests are best served by working with the status quo, which is, this, you know, obviously the, the state-supported uh, regional order with the, you know, the Twin Pillars. Um, and it was also, that was the point when China joined the UN, you know, when they got the seat that Taiwan had held previously, and the, the Nixon-Mao uh, meeting, you know, it was a point where they, they kind of decided that this revolutionary foreign policy wasn't paying off. So they started to just kind of slowly try to normalize relations with countries that had seen them as, as a pretty significant threat up to that point. So then fast forward a little bit, um, the nature of the kind of economic and cultural and political relationships that each of these states form with China, you know, they, there's a common theme, but they, they do take pretty different forms. Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, so I, I'd mentioned 71 was a year of this kind of pivot year. That was the year that Kuwait and Iran both um, established diplomatic relations with China. So they were kind of at the, the forefront there. The next country, surprisingly, was, was Oman, you know, the one that China had been trying to overthrow just a few years earlier. And Sultan Qaboos, I guess, realized that um, China 
with its UN Security Council seat and with its, uh, you know, changes that it, it, that it appeared to be undergoing in the mid-70s, maybe there'd be something worth um, reaching out to China. So, strangely, Oman was the first of the, the remaining five Gulf monarchies to reach out to China. Um, Saudi wanted to keep them at arms. They wanted to keep China out as long as they possibly could. They, they kind of uh, tried to organize an Arab um, boycott of voting for China to let them resume their seat in the UN Security Council. They abstained from voting in it. They were really, um, really, really, really want to keep China out of the Gulf. Uh, Oman started first and demonstrated to the other Gulf countries, especially when the Iran-Iraq war started, that having you know this giant country as a, as a friend might pro provide some benefits. So Oman was pretty smart about it. You know, uh, during the, the early days of the war, China was selling weapons to both Iran and Iraq. And the Omani leadership was able to convince them, look, you're, you're not just sure, short-term profit, you're making some money here, but you're alienating the entire other side of the Gulf that would like to see a policy that's more consistent with, with our um, interests. And when Oman was able to say- think, Sorry, we don't usually think about Oman as having that much diplomatic influence at that high level. So it's really interesting. Yeah, well, I think just because they had, they had kind of established that trust that they were able to, to, to demonstrate to China that they were willing to let the past go and, and, and uh, forge this relationship. And I think the other thing they said is, look, if, if, we can, if you can agree with us on this, uh, I can probably deliver you know, the other Gulf monarchies eventually. And, and that happened when, when Oman was able to show that a relationship with China, as opposed to keeping it out of the Gulf, could actually benefit their, their interests, then you saw the UAE was next in line and the Qatar and the Bahrain all kind of quickly fell, in, uh, fell into place and they all reached out over the 1980s and, and set up official relations with China. It's, it's interesting just how dependent uh, many of the Gulf states have now become on trade with China, especially exports. Yeah, well, that I guess is... is, is how it ended up playing out was this period, the, this transitional period where they started to lay the foundations um, was really, you know, trade was very, very minor because up until 93, China wasn't, uh, China was a net exporter of oil up until 93. You know, the, their production was pretty good for, for what they needed, but these reform era economic changes had, had created an economy that started to, to need to rely on imports. And Oman actually was the first country to export China uh, oil in any kind of serious quantity to China. Um, and it was really in that period of the 90s when the trade started to, to intensify. And then in the century, it's really, really taken off tremendously. Um, I saw, uh, so for example, in, in 2000, um, kind of an artificial cutoff point, but I like the round numbers. In 2000, the trade between the six Gulf monarchies in China was just under $10 billion dollars. And last year, I think it was something like 167 billion. So it's really taken off. That, that's really impressive. So, um, you know, when you look at that, one of the things which has always puzzled me about, uh, about China and the Gulf is that typically when a great power has interests like that and is so dependent on a natural resource like that, they typically develop the military capabilities to defend it since it's such a vital interest. Why, why do you think China has seemed to be so willing to take a back seat militarily, to free ride on American uh, security, when it seems like that might not be the smartest realpolitik thing to do? Well, because it's been really what everybody's been doing in the Gulf for, for so long, right? I mean, the U.S. security umbrella, this, this architecture 
was something that no states really had to question. You know, everybody, whether it's India or Japan or, or Korea or China, everybody knew that this deterrence that the U.S. provided meant that they were going to be safe doing business here to the point where China has, nobody knows, but something like between two and 300,000 people in the UAE alone and, and no military capability to protect them. So for the longest time, they knew that the U.S., was going to provide this. And, you know, we saw, I think it was in 2014 when Obama gave uh, an interview to, to Tom Friedman and he kind of chided uh, China for being a free rider. Um, I think that applies to a lot of countries. Why China? So China would be willing to accept this, I think mostly because the alternative would be either to bandwagon on the U.S. or with the U.S. rather, and, and they have no interest in being a junior partner and, and following the U.S. into things like different military security uh, projects or, or trying to alienate or isolate Iran. Or the other alternative would be to come, kind of come in and balance against this U.S. order. And really, I mean, they, they get everything they need or they have up until this point just by going, going with the system as it is. Um, that's not to say I think that that won't change because obviously I think, especially now with the trade war uh, and with the Indo-Pacific, which kind of looks like a containment policy or containment strategy rather, uh, I think China looks at, at certain key regions as being potential theaters of competition. Uh, I don't think they want this necessarily, but I think they feel that the U.S. is kind of backing them into a corner maybe. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if we do see this change. Maybe not directly in the Gulf, but this base in Djibouti, which opened uh, two years ago, three years ago, and this facility they're building in Gwadar in Pakistan. I mean, those would be two, I think, uh, pretty useful naval facilities for a, a major power that wants to have access to the Gulf, but not maybe not directly be here uh, physically. Well, so where does the uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, fit into this then? Did you see this as the building of an alternative you know, architecture, or do you, or or is it you know, or is it just another version of free riding? And then where does the goal fit into that? Well, I don't think it's another version of free riding. I think what it is is every Chinese leader when they talk about the Belt and Road, they always say it's meant to complement existing uh, the existing international order. It's not meant to be in uh, competition, but it's kind of uh, um, addressing some shortcomings. So there was a report from the Asian Development Bank uh, a few years ago that said Asia was in need of something like $10 trillion worth of infrastructure um, between 2010 and 2020, um, I think. I might have the, the, the numbers wrong on that. But it was a tremendous amount of money that was required, and the IMF and the World Bank had nowhere near the capital to, to address that. And this is at that exact moment you know, when China was sitting on over $3 trillion worth of, of uh, foreign reserves. Um, so it seemed like kind of a good way to, to, to use that money that they're otherwise just sitting on, right, is to build infrastructure across Asia that's going to support their trading networks and, and uh, you know, build pipelines that are going to get oil to them faster and things like this. So the whole idea, the way they describe it, was just to kind of plug some of the holes that existed in the current system. Um, as the deeper we go with it, the more it looks like, you know, maybe it's not a competing order, but it's maybe a competing set of norms, for the existing order. I think that China's benefited a lot from, from the way the system has worked the past uh, 20, 30 years. But I think that there's certainly a lot of normative issues that they don't like. Um, the idea of, of human rights and liberal democracy and things that Western countries tend to promote. Uh, I think China is, is starting to feel comfortable in promoting an alternative to that. 
and the Belt and Road seems to be one way to kind of uh, strengthen uh, those norms in a lot of countries across Eurasia and the Indian Ocean region. So where does the Gulf fit into it? Well, the Gulf is interesting because, you know, um, the whole idea of this is, is to get across those two big expanses, to, you know, across Eurasia and across the Indian Ocean and get into the Mediterranean. And you really have to pass through the Middle East. And the Gulf, I think, is seen in Beijing as the most stable, kind of status quo friendly region of the Middle East, the place where they, they have the most interests, the, the place where they uh, do the most business. Um, so by working with Gulf states, especially the UAE and, and Saudi, and to a lesser degree, Oman, I think, um, these countries can kind of help establish this, this transit point for a, a pretty important Chinese initiative. And one other thing on this is uh, something that didn't really get picked up on a whole lot. Uh, every two years, there's a China-Arab States Cooperation Forum. Every two years, they have a minister's meeting. And the last one was held in 2018. There's going to be another one this summer in Jordan, I believe. But the last one was in Beijing. And all the headlines were China announces $23 billion in aid and development and loans and, and, and stuff like this. Um, the stuff that didn't get covered, which I think is far more interesting, is kind of the strategic component, where they announced this very clumsily titled project called the Industrial Park Port Interconnection Two-Wing Two-Wheel Approach, which, again just rolls off the top. Um, but what it is, is China has been building, it, it's, we, we've seen this around the Gulf for the past few years, uh, but they seemed like uh, projects in isolation. They announced something like $11 billion into this small fishing village in, in Oman called Dukum. And they've been investing a lot more into Abu Dhabi's port, uh, Kizad, which is less than an hour's drive away from Jebel Ali in Dubai. You know, lots of Chinese money and Chinese firms going into to this Abu Dhabi port. Um, they've been investing into a Saudi industrial uh, park in Jazan, and of course the Djibouti port, and um, Ain Sokna and Port Said in Egypt. So all these things together, or sorry, have been, have been looked at in isolation, but when they announced this awkwardly named initiative, it became clear that this was a set of ports and parks that kind of go around the Arabian Peninsula from the, the Gulf to the Sea of, uh, to the Arabian Sea, to the Red Sea, to the Mediterranean. So this kind of looks like the physical architecture of China's presence in the future in this region. Um, they, they say it's commercial, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the future it has, you know, maybe a more strategic component to it. That's fascinating. Well, no, one, one part which isn't featured in your book is, um, is Qatar and where it fits into all of this. So maybe for the last question then, you know, how, how do you see Qatar-China relations uh, in this context and how has the, uh, the blockade and boycott um, affected China's thinking on this? This is really interesting. I'm glad you asked this because, you know, the book, um, I mean, the book was published last year, but I'd submitted it in 2018, and we we're still trying to see how this is going to play out. So I wasn't able to write about it um, to the extent I would have liked. But in 2014, China, so one thing um, before I start, China doesn't do alliances. They do these strategic partnerships. Um, and with Qatar in 2014, they had established this strategic partnership. It's the second high level in their hierarchy. And at the same time, they'd signed something like $8 billion worth of deals. They're building the Lucille Stadium for the FIFA, the opening and closing venue for the World Cup. Um, they're doing a port expansion thing in Doha, like a lot of really big ticket infrastructure deals. And it looked like the Qatar-China relationship was about to really start to take off. Um, also, at the same time, China and the GCC have been developing this, this free trade agreement for a very long time. And they announced in 2016, like, let's get it done 
in a year. And there have been a round of talks, I think it was six talks over the year where, you know, they got pretty close to the end. And then the uh, situation from Qatar and, and the anti-terror quartet, uh, so-called of Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt, um, this happened. And obviously that, that put a, a big a stop or a big hold on any kind of multilateral free trade agreement with an organization that doesn't work anymore. Um, so I think what at first what I expected to see was that China was going to, there's a myth that China's a neutral actor in the Gulf, you know, because they do this partnership with everybody or in the Middle East in general, they, they're, they're friends with the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Emiratis and the Qataris and the Saudis and the Iranians. Um, I don't think this is neutrality. I think it's just them hedging their bets. Hmm. Um, what we saw with Qatar since then is that the UAE, especially in Saudi, has signed a lot of really big deals with China and Qatar hasn't. Interesting. And in 2018, Xi Jinping came to Abu Dhabi and um, had a very, um, very highly publicized meeting where they took the China-UAE strategic partnership and elevated it to the highest level of a comprehensive strategic partnership. Now, I know they all sound kind of... Uh, funny, but what that means is they're going to cooperate on security issues and China considers you a major regional and international partner. So, you know, it, the UAE had kind of leapfrogged into this position of, of uh, prominence in China's uh, Middle East strategy. And shortly after, I mean, it was just, uh, I guess, five or six months later, the Emir of Qatar went to Beijing. And this was during the, the Asia Cup. I don't know if you're a, a soccer fan, but there's this big football tournament here in the Emirates, mm -hmm. which Qatar won or Japan lost, depending on who you ask. <laughs> um, but the Emir wasn't in Doha to celebrate. He was in Beijing. You know, he had gone on this trip to Japan and Korea and, and China. And I guess the message he was sending to people is he's taking care of business. But while he was there, the expectation was he was going to get the same deal the Emirates got. And instead, what he got was a joint communique saying, the deal we signed four years ago or five years ago is working great. Let's keep it up at that level and see what happens later on. So it kind of, it didn't kind of look, it looked very clearly like China had kind of tipped the scales in the UAE's favor uh, instead of Qatar. And kind of as a postscript to that, I don't think it's a coincidence, a few months after that, um, Qatar had re removed its name from this list of countries that supported China's uh, Xinjiang policy. Uh, I believe it's the only Gulf country that did so. So it looks like the relationships kind of cooled off quite a bit. And I think, again, I think China has, has looked at the situation. They realize that partnering with China, or sorry, with the UAE and Saudi and, and uh, you know, their partners gives them access to a lot more um, other countries and a lot more investment opportunities and it kind of supports their belt and road kind of interconnectivity agenda much more than relations with uh, uh, a country that's outside the status quo like Qatar could. Well great well thank you so much we've been speaking with uh, Jonathan Fulton of Zayed University about his new book China's relations with the Gulf monarchies uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much really appreciate it Mark.